people don't like knocking on doors. We did Christmas caroling for many years, trying to get to know people. But this this has really opened up a lot of doors you know, with our neighbors. So and we get to people coming by. They, yeah, and we here. don't we don't charge to use the grounds at all. So it's it's just a, exactly like Rick said. I mean, folks that come back here and here. All right. So anyway, we do what we can, right? The Lord takes care of the rest. Um, Let's have another word of prayer as we get started on our finishing up, Lord willing, these notes this morning as we uh, continue in our study account. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it's uh, whenever I stand up here, I'm, I'm so keenly aware of the inadequacies of myself. And um, if, if I'm totally honest, I would have to say if it's not for the merits and the work of Christ, I have no business getting my dirty fingers on my colored pages. But you've given us your word. This holy book, this sacred right comes down to us from other sinners who are just like we are. Who've been faithful through the generations to translate it, to copy it, to to put it into our hands and it's now a faithful uh, it's now an entrustment to us to be faithful with it even as we've been looking in these verses about those whom you sent and, and, uh, and, uh, and so we thank you Heavenly Father for sending your holy uh, harmless undefiled son to to our sinful race and to mingle with the likes of us and to use as Rick and I were talking before Sunday school, just ordinary, even subpar people so that you can receive the glory. So I pray this morning uh, again, despite my inadequacies by your Holy Spirit, as Erica said in her prayer, that you would teach us from your word this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name. John chapter 13, um, we have been through the foot watching, and remember the timeline, um, just to refresh your memories briefly, the timeline, you know, John is not, uh, he's writing about 50 years after the events, right, and the other three Gospels that we call the Synoptic Gospels, which basically follow a very similar um, timeline with each other, John is, is writing probably a couple decades after those have been widely circulated and answering questions, filling in things, uh, something like upwards of 90 plus percent of John is unique uh, to the uh, in, in Gospels, okay? So the content is unique. And, uh, and so it's helpful to, to compare John often to the other Gospels. And we've done that throughout our study, um, which we've been doing this for a number of years, but... Uh, um, Again, we looked at the timeline for the upper room, right? And, and compared what, uh, what the other gospels say and so forth. And it's hard, you can't really be dogmatic, I think, about exactly how to lay out all of the events that happened in all four gospels. But it seems reasonable to me to piece together, especially what, so Matthew and Mark are pretty light on details. 
uh, uh, in the upper room. Uh, Luke gives us a little bit more. John gives us quite a bit, right? There's really five chapters here. Uh, not all of it exactly happening in the upper room. Chapters 13 and 14 happen in the actual upper room. 15 and 16, which are part of that upper room discourse, and then the high priestly prayer in 17, all five chapters are kind of all part of that sort of upper, start in the upper room and then extend apparently as they're leaving, walking out of Jerusalem to the garden and so forth and and, uh, and even in the garden, okay? So, but point of all that is when we look at this, um, the disciples enter that room with a, in a very different place. Remember, we looked at that, right? So they're very excited about this, what, what scholars call triumphalistic Messiah, who is, they're sure any day, they know he's the Messiah, right? And they're sure any day he's going to take up the reins, he's going to put the Romans in their place, and he's going to bring the kingdom to earth, right? And so they have a hard time reconciling. He's already told them, and the other synoptic gospels have tell us this too on a number of occasions, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified, rejected, crucified, and so on. Uh, and then three days he'll rise again. But this, this they really, they, I, I, know that, I know that they heard that. We, we kind of say, well, one ear about the other. They heard that, but they don't know how to process that with what they've been taught all their lives as young, young from the time they were knee-high to a grasshopper and going to synagogue uh, about the Old Testament scriptures and how Messiah was going to come and, and make them the head and not the tail and you know all of those triumphalistic um, prophecies of what, what Messiah was going to do and judging their enemies and so forth. So chapter 12, you know, we had the triumphal entry. It's called triumphal entry. It's really a presentation of the king. Right, uh, there was a lot of people ex excited in Jerusalem about the raising of Lazarus, and all that excitement just feeds into the disciples' confidence that the that the, the kingdom, the messianic earthly kingdom, is going to come any day. Right, and so they come to this upper room on cloud nine. Jesus comes in a very different place, right, because he knows what the Father's plan is, and he knows the timeline. It's very important because. You have to keep, I keep stressing this point again and again, because as we work through these chapters, you have to remember where they were, how Jesus is turning their mindset around to understand what is really happening. Because, as I've mentioned to you, one of the sort of, I didn't actually put the title there, but in my brain, I'm, you know, I have sort of this title over these four chapters uh, 13 to 16, which is preview of coming attractions. If you look through all through all of those four chapters, so much of it is him predicting what is about to happen in the hours, days, weeks, and even years ahead in their lifetime. Okay, and there's even a hint of what's going to happen after that in the high priestly prayer, where he says, "I pray not just for them, but for those who will believe on me." What? through their testimony, right? So that's the growth of, that's us as well. The growth of the church over thousands, they didn't know that, but thousands of years, right? So he's telling them what is about to happen because he, he has to do some course correction in their thinking, okay? It's not that those Old Testament scriptures that they're all enamored about, uh, the triumphalistic passages that talk about the Messiah coming and and, and bringing the kingdom and, and, and ruling the nations with the rod of iron and 
you know, they, they're not trained for war anymore and the child will put his hand in the coat, you know, cobra's den, not be hurt and all that. Um, those will happen, but not now. So again, very important we understand that. They come into this room on an emotional high, believing that it's just about any time, because again, all the enthusiasm they just saw a few days earlier as he's riding in Jerusalem, and there's still a lot of buzz and excitement among many of the Jews, um, upwards of a million, perhaps even two million, that we estimate could have been in Jerusalem for the Passover this time. It's a lot of people <laughs> in a town that's normally about 200,000, we think. Okay. So they're very excited. And that kind of boils, that excitement boils out in pride, right? And Luke Luke tells us that, where they got into an argument about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And the Lord has to set that right, right? He, he starts to tell them, one of you is going to betray me. And instead of inward looking and saying, maybe it's I, they're looking around, right? And we saw that in the other Gospels, that, that, that initially they're out, there's outward focus. Well, it's got to be him. It's got to be him. And it seems that Peter particularly got really offended by that. And his ire really got up. You know, of course, he's always, if everybody's if everybody's noise level is here, Peter's noise level is here, right? And his decimal level seems to go, you know, anyway. Um, so the Lord has to put that announcement of the betrayal on pause and deal with their pride and their attitude. Because yet again, they're displaying this as I said in my prayer, this inadequacy of the vessel, right? They, God has got, and he's got to do that with us. Yes, he does. He'll do that with us too. Before you can be filled with Christ, you have to be emptied of yourself. Mm -hmm. Your pride leaves no room for the grace of God. That's something the Lord's really speaking to me about a lot lately. You know, we've been through uh, three plus years of some really sort of successive difficult trials. Um, and, and some of which we're still feeling lingering effects and, and dealing with. Um, but whenever a person is squeezed, whatever they're full of comes out, right? And, and you don't really know what's in your heart until the Lord puts you in the grinder, you know, or, uh, and, and he, in his grace, he knows just how much, Amen. you know, to put you through and he gives you the grace to go through it, but he does it to show you what's really inside. And that's what he's doing. With his disciples, and they're going to go through a really difficult time when he is betrayed and 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 uh, crucified and, and dead and buried, right? And and uh, anyway, so we'll talk more about that as we come. So the foot washing then comes right on the heels of what Luke says, where he says, you know, he rebukes them for their arguing among themselves, and he says, you know, the Gentiles handle leadership that way, but it's not to be that way among you. Let those who are the greatest be the servant. Right? And he says, I'm among you as what? That's one who serves. And then he gets up. He washes their feet. And that, that image is so vivid in John's recollection. And it's such a holy form. Such a, just a, wow, what a, wow, what a, what a shock to their pride. Right? Here's, here's the Lord. And he says that after he's finished. He says, you call me Lord teacher. You're right. If I do that, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? If I'm doing that, you ought to do that for you, for each other. And the, the issue is not foot washing per se, but foot washing as, as a picture of the water of the word of God. And that's what we do when we gather together. We wash each other's feet with the word of God, right? We, we, <clears throat> we get the dust of the world. As you walk through this world, you get the dust of the world on your feet. 
And that, that image is clear. We'll see that in chapter 15 where he elaborates some more on that using that same word clean, but this time referring to, to the pruning process that God the Father uses to, to take his word and cut off from fruitful branches the stuff that is getting in the way of fruitfulness. Again, emptying us of ourselves so that we can go and in Christ. <clears throat> that make sense? I know that's kind of a fast review, but here we are. We're going to finish up. We've been on these particular notes. This is uh, verses 18 through 30 um, as we work our way through chapter 13. Um, and uh, um, in this, I've titled this, Jesus Dismissive Judas Iscariot. We've looked at apostasy in general. We've looked at apostles also and combined those two terms, a little bit of a wordplay there, apostle of apostasy. He is the definitive, Judas is the definitive um, model, you might say, uh, or warning. <laughs> uh, your life will either be an example or a warning. Okay, uh, He is a definitive warning of somebody who, who can be sincerely uh, uh, deceived into believing that they are saved when they are in fact not, right? And there's there's, as I said to you last time, there's a positive and a negative, right? The positive, the negative side is obviously the warning, right? Be careful that you're not a Judas. As Paul says, examine yourself, be sure you're in the faith, right? Matthew 7, we looked at, right? That text. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they mean prophesy in your name, right? And, and while you're out here, you know, maybe even sharing tracks with people or preaching or, or being involved in Christian stuff, be sure you don't miss it, right? Yourself. That warning is there. The positive side of it, too, is for those uh, of us who have poured yourself into the life of somebody, not just, you know, hand a track and, you know, maybe you see them throw it in the trash and, oh, that hurts my feelings. No, we're talking about somebody you've poured yourself into for years, okay? And you've had close, intimate relationships with that person. Uh, maybe they're a family member. Uh, maybe they're a close friend or something. And you, and you thought that you were getting somewhere of the gospel with them, right? And and then they, after years of what seemed to be fruitfulness and responsiveness, they walk away. Okay, remember that happened to Jesus too. And that's maybe maybe the encouragement we can take from Judas's example. Okay, so that's all. Again, in review, uh, we're in point number two in our outline, which is, and hopefully, Lord willing, like I said, we'll finish this today. These notes, and we'll move on from here. Can't wait to get to verse 33 because that sets up everything that's coming, right? Why does he say to them, not once but twice, let not your heart be troubled? That's because of what he says in verse 33. Okay. So that's coming in our notes. But we're we'll finish this up. We'll go to verse 30 here. So um point number two, Jesus marks and dismisses Judas. So let's just read those verses together. Um <clears throat> I was going to ha maybe have somebody. Um, ah, ah, ah. I think we might have time to do that this morning. Um, look, as, as I'm reading verses 21 to 30, let's, uh, you, you see on your notes there, you've got um, the other sort of parallel accounts in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, let's have some volunteers to look each one of those up and, and read those out loud for us, okay? Who wants to take Matthew, uh, Matthew's account? 
Thank you. What do you notice about the three synoptic accounts there? Besides the gravity. <laughs> Pretty short compared to John's. Well, I noticed that uh, I think that Matthew and Mark said it'd be better for you not to have been born. Uh, I don't think Luke said that, but yeah. Matthew and Mark, boy, that struck me right there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't think John said that either. No, John didn't. No. But, uh, you know, think about that. People today who are lost, going to hell. Mm -hmm. It'd be better for them to have never been born. Hard to yeah, say that to someone. <laughs> but boy, you you got it. Yeah. What what a statement that is. Yeah, it really has some gravity, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I feel that. What else do you notice um, about this these texts? Maybe as compared to, to what we read in John. May ask it this way: um, If if your if your only source for knowing what is happening at this moment in, in the timeline of the upper room um, are those three gospels, what's one of the what's one of the questions that might be on the fore, forefront of your thinking in terms of what the disciples in the room are thinking when Jesus announces who it is? They're probably, I think, Peter sees the point fingers, but I think it also would be a good thing to check your own heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they, they have that. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah. I, one thing that attracts me is Jesus knew this is this was going to happen. This had to happen. Yeah. This is all preordained so that Christ. You know, would die on the cross and our sins would be forgiven. What there is debate about is, um, I guess, um, was Judas, Judas did what was supposed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Am I wrong? Yeah. He did what was supposed to happen. Right. If he had never been born, would it have happened? <laughs> you follow me? It, it's it's yeah it, intellectually it's yeah. it's got me spun around that yeah yeah well which which as a side note and that, that's not we can really go on a long rabbit trail that that's a rabbit trail yeah um, you're not a rabbit well what, what is interesting is that's one of the clues in scripture there are some other places if you ever wondered this if God knows contingencies that could have happened what the outcome would have been the answer is yes he does. Yeah. It's the infinite mind of God. I mean, you think about all the permutations just of what could have happened in the universe and what if I'd said that or whatever. But that'll blow your mind real fast. I think I think it's because we had we had free will. Uh, uh, the outcome, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I, I will I believe scripture teaches our will is actually kept before. You don't have really have free will until Christ gets older. Then you, have, you really do have a choice. Um, but let me let me put let me pull this around to the debate, which which is still kind of um, 
I, I think John resolves it for us. Okay, this is what I'm trying to say is is that John he he spends a lot more time than the other three gospels telling us about that moment. And there's a reason for that, okay? And what I'm trying to get us to do is, you know, as we look at the other synoptic gospels, get a sense of what the early church had, um, all the information the people who weren't there in the room had up to that point, okay? And I think, which, again, John is writing as a much older senior. In fact, um, I, I believe this is post Patmos. It could have, this gospel could likely have come even after writing Revelation. Back in Ephesus, where he had been pastor for many years, he's writing this. He's very, very, very near the end of his life. Okay, he's point is he's very senior, he's very experienced. He's had a lot of people ask him questions about what actually was happening based on what they had read in other gospels, right? And so he spends a lot of moment, a lot of time here in this moment, and he answers some things here. And I think the main uh, a point of what he's trying to get to is this question. If you all knew that it was Judas, why didn't you stop him? Right? So again, if you go back and you look at those gospels, particularly Matthew, where, where you know, where the Lord has this rather lengthy discourse about, about it. John helps us to understand why it was that nobody stepped up. and Because just a few hours later, what's Peter doing no. in the garden? He's no. swinging the sword, man, and, and and this is this is not just you know like two or three guards. Apparently, this was could have been conservatively conservatively as many as two hundred guards from Temple and Fort Antonia. The Roman is apparently a mix. I think John makes that clear in the language that it was a mix of both guards and soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. So it was a very large number. And here's Peter swinging his sword, going to take these guys off, right? Um, so why didn't here's just one man? Why didn't Peter? Why didn't you stand up and just pour it? You're not going anywhere, Jesus, right? And so John answers that question here um, for us, okay? And that's kind of where we are in in our text. We've already walked through. I don't want to spend a lot of time walking through where we've already been because we do need to finish um, uh, this and move on. Like I said, but. Um, Jesus, uh, verse 21, is very troubled in spirit, right? Same kind of language which was used at the tomb of Lazarus in chapter 11. Um, it, it doesn't just mean uh, an, an emotional, but it's a mental and emotional trouble. It's, it's, it's emotions that are stirred up because of something that you know, right? And it's, it's testified, truly, truly, one of you will be trained. So remember, he's, he's already started, he put the whole timeline together, he's already started to say something about it. But they're looking at each other, right, in their pride. He puts that on pause. He has to deal with their pride through the foot washing, through the rebuke and Luke and all of that. Now he's come back. He's hit the play button again. He's come back to this announcement again. So his, his, his emotions show the shift in thinking that he has. They're going to share those emotions as they learn what he knows. That's important, right? As they learn the truth that he knows, they're going to share these emotions. They're going to become very troubled, especially, like I said, he's not done unloading on them. Verse 33, they thought this was bad. Verse 33 is even worse, right? So uh, verse 22, the disciples looked at one another. Now, now they're looking at an uncertain of whom he spoke. And the other synoptic gospels that we just read say they began to look at themselves, right? Saying, I said, I one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, reclining 
at a table close to Jesus, uh, was was reclining close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, uh, Jesus whom he was speaking. Remember, we talked about that as well. They're not, it's not, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, great masterpiece, the Last Supper, but it's inaccurate, right? They're not sitting at a European table. They're leaning at a Greek table, right? Which would then about maybe that high off the ground. And that, you know, it's a formal dinner. The Jews picked up that tradition as well. And, and you're not sitting head to toe. John is is evidently at just leaning like sitting right next to Jesus. And he's able to, you know, as he's eating, he's able to lean back and, and talk quietly to Jesus. But who's on the left-hand side? Judas. Judas. Okay. As I read to you from Michael Card, that the the, the, uh, the Jewish um, place of the close friend, right? It's right there. That's that's the left hand, the intimate friend, place of the intimate friend, and that's a fulfillment of the song, right? We looked at all of that, and and so Jesus is able. That's how he's able to very easily dip and give it to him because he's right there. And so this, we know this is John, right? So Peter motions to John. To, to sitting at the right hand to, to ask him with whom he was speaking. Um, just a quick reference for you. Um, verse 25, so that disciple leaning back and Jesus said to him, who is it, Lord? If you're writing some notes there, there's a connection with uh, uh, verse 25 to chapter 21, verse 20, okay? When we get to 21, uh, Lord willing, in our lifetime, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we'll... Hopefully, if I can remember, we'll reference that back. But 2020, 21-20 also makes that connection that if very clearly speaking about John, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we won't take time to, to do that, but you can write that down with that. Okay. Um, verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it, right? So, so Jesus is telling this to John. It's not clear here that this is necessarily an announcement for e that everybody heard. But when you read the other synoptic gospels, it is pretty clear that he has told them who it was going to be. But I think that in, in the uh, piecing this timeline together, that with all the other things that were going on, that little bit of information wasn't on the forefront of their minds. But when he comes back to this again later, it's John who very specifically sees that sign and understands what probably many, many of the others around that table and in that room didn't necessarily hear or know, right? Uh, so again, let's continue here as, as we read. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to, to, to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now Simon, or Judas would have heard this as well, right? He'd be right there. And we looked at this last time Judas has been listening. Judas, Judas has already gone to the chief priests, right, to the, to the Jewish leaders and volunteered to help them, right? And he's already received his money by this point. The other disciples don't know that, but he knows that. And Jesus knows that, of course. So they both know this. The other disciples don't know this. Um... But remember that the other Gospels tell us that the, that the leaders didn't want to take care of business with Jesus until after the Passover, right? That's very clear, very important to remember that. So Judas wasn't expecting. 
to, to be doing it. He fully expected to finish the meal with them and go on and do whatever else they're doing, right? He was just waiting for the right time. The, the leadership wasn't ready for it either, right? But it was God's time, right? It's God's time. And so Judas becomes, as I said last time, the trigger. You know, the gun is loaded, everything, all the parts are there, the gun's clean and loaded and well-oiled and ready to go and everything, and you got that one little thing. It sits there, nothing happens until somebody pulls the trigger, right? And then the firing, all, all of those reactions take place, you know, and, and you end up with the, the crucifixion, right? But G, if, if Judas is the trigger, it's Jesus who pulls it. That's really, really important because Jesus was not a victim of circumstance. He's the victim, right? He's the one that's in control. And John really stresses that. Again, not surprising because John's emphasis here is the Lordship of Christ, is, is his deity, right? He's in control. He and the Father are doing this work together perfectly in harmony. There's no plan B. There's no surprises, right? All right, so... John, that's part of John's point here, too, is that Jesus is in charge. But also that the disciples didn't really know what was going on, right? So look at verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly, right? Again, like we said last time, here's Jesus leaning on his left elbow, takes his right hand he dips it. He's already told them as a group that this was happening, right? We just read, I forget it was um, Mark's account, I think, or maybe Matthew's, where Ju Judas says, is it I? And you have said so. Um, and, and so here's, here's Jesus again, giving him one more chance, right? One more, because again, Judas is right there. He would have heard what what he said to John, right? This the one that I dip and <clears throat> the bread into the sop and give it to is the one. Right? And Judas already knows, again, like I said, he knows he's got those coins tickling into his pocket. He knows what he's done. But again, he's not expecting for it right now. But notice that again, started verse 27 when he had taken the motion. Has a choice. Mm -hmm. you know, it's all, in my mind, it's almost, I mean, this, this is so vivid. You can almost like see it like you're watching a movie, right? And in my mind, I can just see that morsel suspended in time and the process of Judas's thinking, you know, do I take it and, and getting back to the if, well, what if, what if he said, forgive me, for, for, I repent, you know, have mercy of no, I'm not taking that morsel, right? But he did. It's God's, God's plan. Jesus is pulling the trigger. The Father's in charge. This has all been set up. This is according to God's plan. That's hard to understand, isn't it? It really it's hard is. hard to understand that it, it is God's plan, predetermined before the foundation of the world, and yet that does not alleviate the responsibility that the people had in betraying him, the high priest included. That's right. To all very definitely make the decision themselves. That's right. That's right. It's a mystery. It is mystery, yeah. You know, you, you you almost get the idea that maybe God is a little bigger than we are. You kind of yeah, you kind of told him. Yeah, yeah. to be able to. You know, I used to, I used to think I used to be kind of 
a little bit more enamored with not enamored, just made it wrong way, but just kind of wondering, well, why doesn't God do, you know, why doesn't he do miracles to prove, you know, the truth of the gospel today to people who know and, and, and believers to go around raising the dead or whatever. And, and but the more I learn about God's sovereignty, the more I'm I'm more impressed with his ability to take the, the, the vast countless choices of millions, billions of people, right? In, in which they are culpable for that. It is their choice. It is your choice. It is my choice, right? That he's able to take that and still work his will out perfectly so that everything comes out the way he wants it. Even though, and not, and not just human choices, but angelic choices, right? Um, all of these, it's just astounding to me. This, to me, that's more miraculous than just overriding everything. Well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put, I'm just going to be, you know, like Thanos or something. I'm going to put my glove on and I'll snap and everybody's going to disappear. You know, you just see what I'm saying with just an overwhelming show of force. He uses all of that choice that people have, including Judas, and weaves it all together perfectly to get the outcome he wishes. And he's pretty early. That's amazing. Somebody had a hand up. It is. Now, when you look at it, it's good that um, that John was the one that was sitting on Jesus' right hand side, and not Peter, because if Peter would have heard, if Peter yeah. would have said, "Peter jumped up there," he's probably doing it. You know, Peter would have said, "Who's going to do it?" And then yeah. Jesus would have said, "It's the person that I'm going to give this bread and this and give it to him." You know, and as soon as you, you know, Peter would have been watching, and then whoever Jesus did gave it to. To come up swinging, and Judas wouldn't even have made it out the door. Quite likely, yeah. You know, but remember, Peter doesn't know. No, Judas doesn't even know. Right, but I'm saying nobody knows. If no. that's what would have happened, and Jesus would have told Peter that, oh, Peter is going to be the person that I'm going to swear to. If Peter was sitting where John was, yes, Peter would have come up swinging. And exactly, yeah. Peter, if Peter had known all of the circumstances, I fully agree with that. I think he would have definitely. And like I say, his his behavior in the garden a few hours later shows that he would have come out swinging. They had a dog pile Judas, and it'd been over for him. Um, but uh, but John John explained. Look, hang with me here because we're almost done. Okay, so verse twenty eight now. Now to yeah yeah. I was under the assumption that you're either controlled by Satan or you're controlled by the Spirit. Does Satan not dwell unbelievers? No. First of all, Satan himself is not omnipresent of God. He can only be once at a time. Um, but you might say, you know, through demonic control, possessing people. Um, no, I don't, I don't. I don't believe that Scripture teaches that even unsaved people are, in, you know, all controlled by or under. When it says, for example, in scripture that he has blinded the eyes of the you know unbelieving lest they see the light of glorious gospel, the way that, that the way that the devil does that most of the time is through the world system. So that so that the world system of which he is the little G God, he's the ruler of it, um, is 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 and we boy, we see that today, right? It's constantly full of all kinds of deceptive doctrines, rabbit trails that you can run down on. The New Testament warns about that all the time. Avoid people. You know who 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 
are taking on um, uh, old wives' tales or, or or just distracted with with genealogies and you know all of these different just countless distractions that are out there in culture that distract people away from the truth of God. I think that's the majority. He can, uh, and this obviously demon possession is a real thing. I'm not, not denying that. I'm just saying that I don't think the vast majority of people are controlled directly by demons, at least not now. Uh, there seems to be going to be a rise of that, I think, in the very, very end times, just before the Lord returns. Boy, you talk about it. <laughs> you think things are bad culture now. I've seen some videos where, you know, I wonder if people have. But what's interesting here is, as far as I can tell, this is the only place where Satan personally possesses somebody. He didn't leave us to a lesser demon, which is interesting. Uh, and I don't want to, I mean, there's a lot to be said about, about all of that, you know. Um, what's interesting here, too, just, just in passing, because the God of, and we'll probably talk some more about this, in fact, we will, because Jesus is going to talk about how the God of this world is now judged. He's going to talk about that here in the chapters. Um, we don't often think about it. We often think about how God judged our sin on Christ on the cross. What we overlook is that God was also judging that system, particularly that which in chapter 8 he says, you are sons of the devil, meaning Satan spawned and controlled and used that, Judea, that, that Judaism of the time, that that whole temple system, the corruption of the, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the synagogue system, all of that was spawned by Satan to control them. Okay? And, and God judges that system on the cross and destroys it ultimately because that becomes the ultimate, when they crucify their Messiah, that becomes the ultimate, uh, you might say, trigger for the destruction of that system, what, 40 years later. Anyway, there's a lot there, I know, but um, I'm really trying to finish. <laughs> okay, so verse 28. Uh, now, uh, no one at the table, now listen to what John, a little commentary from John, right? Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. So even even Peter, so apparently Peter's like, hey, John, Luke. So John asked, and, and, and apparently John conveyed, if Peter didn't hear the message directly, John conveyed that back. So they knew that it was Judas. All right, so there's this, still this question, well, why did they stop? Well, again, because, again, they didn't know all the details. And even Judas himself was not expecting things to go down right now, right? At the very earliest, it would have been maybe after Passover when, when all the numbers leave Jerusalem and the excitement, you know, dwindles down, and, right? Because the Gospels tell us, Matthew particularly, that the Jews didn't want to do it during Passover, the Jewish leaders, um, because they were afraid of the people, right? People, a lot of people were very enthusiastic about Jesus and they didn't want to, to get into trouble with the crowds. Um, so anyway, let's let's continue. So no one, so again, John makes it clear, no one at the table knew why he said this. Continue verse 29. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor, right? Well, we know Judas had the money back. We've already been told that. Uh, if you flip back a quick second to the left uh, in your Bible, John uh, chapter 12, verses 56. I'm sorry. 
John chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. This is right after Mary comes in and anoints Jesus with that costly oil, right? Out in the alabaster jar. And, and, and um, Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples about betraying said, right, starting in verse 5 now, why was this ointment not paid, not sold for 300 denarii? That's a whole year's wages, of the average wage earner, okay? Average annual salary. And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. John is letting us know a little bit of detail there that becomes germane later, right? Right here. So we already know Judas kept the money bag. We all, what else do we know? We know he was greedy, right? He's thief. He's, he's pilfering. He's stealing from it, even though he's entrusted with the money bag, which, by the way, says something about the character of Judas. Right, we've talked this about this before. It wasn't as if you know every head turned as soon as Jesus said one of you is going to betray me, and everybody gets whiplash looking at Judas. Well, we knew it was him, right? Because he's no, he's not this caricature of this sniveling, snarling, you know, satanic, you know, disciple. He's entrusted with the common purse. That's pretty. That's pretty drastic. It says a lot about. At least the, his ability to deceive himself and others about his true nature. I don't know. It kind of reminded me of, like, because the Bible has so much symbolism of, like, this is kind of the first church, I guess. Or maybe the, you know, maybe it's, um, I don't know, symbolic of what, like, later on in, um, you know, when they write the epistle, like they're telling them that, you know, there are people in the church that say they're Christians and they're leaders and they're, you know, they're false or whatever. And they have that sitting there, they do this, and then underneath, like they're not show, doing what, you know, that they're supposed to be doing for the church. And they're not really with God. They just kind of never. That's why I kind of called him the apostle of apostasy because he's sort of like their poster boy. Like this, that's what happens to the church after the yeah absolutely and the church is still struggling for that. yeah that's why i say you know when we're studying apostasy the real danger if you're if your brain thinks when you hear the word apostasy somebody who professed faith in christ but has rejected that and walked off and is living you know as an atheist or something now okay well that's that is a form of apostasy, but the one the New Testament warns us about that the early church struggles, we still is our apostates who have left the faith but are still in the church. Those are the ones that were the yeah, dangerous. Yep, yep, you're right. Also seems to indicate that I hadn't thought about it until we discussed it that there was some degree of administrative oversight with various responsibilities that were designated to different disciples. Yeah, that's right. There was organization. It sure was. Yeah. yeah. I think that we also think this is a good lesson for us because Jesus took a dive like the world. Yeah. And he took money before. How many people do we know and ourselves that we put things before the Lord? Amen. We do it. Sure. I mean, it's, it, if you don't do it, then you're, you're a liar because we had that sinful nature but I think that's what it is. Is he walked with the Lord? He had the ability to do the things that the others did. But the greed and the ambition of having that money mm -hmm. trumped 
his love for the Savior. And we can very easily be the same way. We can be lured into other things that will take our eyes off the Lord. My problem is, I, what bothers me is, I don't watch the news because when I do that, then I start doubting things. So that's why I quit watching the news. And so I just keep, not that I focus on him all the time because I don't, but so we all to do what we're supposed to do. But I think that was mainly his main thing is, is he took his love, his eyes off the Lord, took his love away from the Lord, and put that. Now he's always probably had a little money, but it was just the enticement of that, and he saw that as a lesson for us. Don't be enticed. When something looks good, it's usually not. I think there's an element too of not just love of money for Judas, but disappointment with Jesus. I think he was deeply disappointed. And, and that, that moment there uh, where Jesus allows that oil to be wasted uh, points that out. But remember, Jesus was not the Messiah that they all were looking for, right? And Judas Judas just couldn't take that. Uh, he began to really, that really began to resonate with him. And I think he's looking for an exit strategy. I don't know where this is going. This is not right. And you know, leaders, leaders are not accepting him. They're rejecting that hate him. Uh, this is this is not supposed to go down this way. But whatever, whatever all those things are, here's, I think, the take-home for us. Deal with your personal private sin. Whether it's love of money, disappointment with Jesus again, you know, uh, when, when things come into your life that you thought a child of God would never face, and yet they're there, and you know they're there by God's sovereignty, how do you handle that? What's your response? Are you going to be like Job? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him, right? Or are you going to be like Judas that looks for an exit? And, and, and it wasn't as if Judas is going along and he's fully on board and everything's cool. And then this just being, you know, all of a sudden happens. This is slow, steady growth in his life of sin and not dealing with personal sin in his own life. This is why we've started recently in our church, you know, having this time in a service where we require reflection and repentance, right? Because so many churches, and I'm just more keenly, keenly aware of this, more and more don't talk about sin, personal sin. I mean, we, may, we may talk about the evils in the world, but it's out there somewhere, right? It's, it's somebody else, and I don't have to deal with my own personal sin. But the only thing that separates you and I from Judas is the grace of God to recognize and repent over our sin, right? And to put our trust in Christ for that. Instead of trying to make, oh, you see how you see the difference between Peter and, and 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 Judas. You know, Judas tries to make up for his bad behavior over here, right? And and he's still leaning on himself. So <laughs> start warning, right? Very, very important. Each and every one of us deal with our personal sin. The Lord has his his hand on something in your life and, and it's private and you know it. Or even if it's known by some others, but you kind of downplay it. Deal with it. Deal with it. All right, verse 30. We're done. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Right? It was night. It's dark. Uh, John has a lot of imagery with light. Jesus is presented as the light of the world. In time, right at the very beginning, in his introduction, he talks about the light that came and was the light, the light of life, right? Uh, a prophecy in the, you know, in the Old Testament about the light that has shined to people dwelling in darkness. All of that. 
hard to miss that imagery. That's there. But Jesus, uh, Judas had a choice in that moment. <clears throat> Again, part of God's plan. Jesus pulls the trigger. He's not a victim of circumstance. He's the one that starts all the time. All right. Wish we had time for more. This is a great class, but we only have limited time. Right? So next time, Lord willing, we'll continue. Like Max said, words. Heavenly Father, um, there's a lot here. Lots, lots here. And we've, we've already been here about um, four sessions or so forth. Um, and there's still more. <laughs> so we thank you so much for the richness of your word. Thank you so much for giving us this this glorious gospel and explaining so much of it to us, this grand, what I call the grand plan of redemption that you are doing. Uh, it's humbling to think that you would call us to this, what you do. And Father, even as I stand up here and we talk about Judas and we talk about private sin and repentance, I know there are things in my own heart that are wrong. And I know they're wrong. They're like persistent, stubborn sin that's easy to kind of just get comfortable with and sort of live with it. And token repentance, maybe. Help us not to do that. Help us to take that seriously because you are in the business of, again, emptying us of our old selves so you can fill us with Christ. He is the model, He is the one, His character, His righteousness. Um, is not just applied to us forensically, but it is it is also uh, to be adopted by us practically. We are to live this. We are to be like him, to take on his mind, to, and to see life the way he does. And that and sin smudges up those glasses and distracts us, uh, even even little things that we don't think are a big deal. So help us to deal with that uh, and to take it seriously. In Jesus' name. Bless the service coming up, I pray to Jesus' name.